I invite you to open your copy of God's Word. If you have one with you, if you don't have one with you, there ought to be one under the seat in front of you or one nearby. Open it to, again, Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. If you're using one of the uh, Bibles under the seat in front of you, you'll find this. You'll find Luke 1, verse 57 through 80, uh, on page 804. Uh, The large numbers on the pages of the Bible are the chapters. That's chapter 1. The small superscripted numbers are the verses. So we're in chapter 1, verse beginning in verse 57 and going through verse 80 this morning. When Romeo swears by the moon his love for Juliet, Juliet says to Romeo, Oh, swear not by the moon, the inconstant moon that monthly changes in her circled orb, lest that thy love prove likewise variable. Young Juliet knows Romeo, the boy who was just pining over his last crush, Rosalind, not but five minutes before. Juliet knows that Romeo is fickle, and if his love is anything like the moon by which he swears, it will change tomorrow. So then if not by the moon, Romeo asks, then what? To what shall By what shall I swear? To which Juliet replies, Do not swear at all. Or if thou wilt, swear by thy gracious self, which is the God of my idolatry, and I'll believe thee. Shakespeare's Juliet illustrates what all of us know to be so true, that promises matter. A pledge to act, to love, to rescue, to provide, means absolutely nothing if the one who makes that pledge cannot be trusted. We know very well the pain and the heartache of broken promises probably far too well as human beings and far better than we know the joy of promises kept. But as we make our way into the next scene in Luke's account of the events leading to Jesus' birth, we see something quite the opposite. Not disappointment in promises failed, but hope, joy, praise, confidence in a glorious promise that has been kept to an older, childless couple, the promise of a son being born. Not Jesus, not yet, it's next week, but John, his herald, the forerunner, born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, our our central passage this morning, we see that John's birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth is in fulfillment to God's promise Not just to send a son to Zechariah and Elizabeth, but is promised to send a son who will be a savior and the prophet who will go before him. John's birth is the first half of the installment of the fulfillment of the promise by God to send a savior. The main idea in these verses this morning, and which we'll consider uh, uh, today, is this. That when God gloriously fulfills his promises, it gives us cause for humble praise and confidence in him. God is not like Romeo. He does not make promises by shifting things, but rather promises by himself and is faithful to fulfill them. Let's stand together as we have our copy of God's Word open. Follow along in your Bibles as I read Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Luke, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, continues writing his history of the life of Jesus. We read, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, 
none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. This is God's word. You may be seated. When God gloriously fulfills his promises, as we watch him doing here in Luke, it gives cause for humble praise and confidence in him. First of all, in these verses, uh, verses 57 through 66, we see that promises kept lead to humble praise. When God keeps his promises, it leads his people to humble praise. Now, coming into this passage, we're already familiar with the situation. We've been working through it week by week. Back in the first part of Luke chapter 1, we saw the angel Gabriel appear to Zechariah in the temple and announce that he and his wife, Elizabeth, would have a son in their advanced age after having no children up to that point. We heard in the temple Zechariah's statement of disbelief, how will I know that this will happen? And we watched as he was struck speechless, literally, by Gabriel for his disbelief. Last week we looked at the meeting between Mary and Elizabeth, uh, Mary being newly pregnant with Jesus and Elizabeth already fairly well along in her pregnancy and all of the joy that was taking place between them and between the children in their wombs. So here now in verse 57 of Luke 1, it's nine months after Zechariah's visit from Gabriel, three months after Mary's visit to Elizabeth, and now Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is born. Zech and Lizzie being faithful Jews, Zechariah himself a priest, wanting to demonstrate their faithfulness to God and all of their commitment to raise John in the fear and admonition of the Lord, they take him to be circumcised on the eighth day after he was born. And at the naming ceremony, at the time of circumcision, everyone in all their family is shocked that Elizabeth wants to name the baby John. All of them think Zechariah Jr. would be a far better option. But Elizabeth is insistent. No, his name is John. Meanwhile, Zechariah is still mute. He still can't speak. But the family wants to double-check with him to make sure that Elizabeth hasn't misunderstood uh, what she said, to, to make sure that she's not, not somehow misnaming the child. Now, 
Luke only tells us that Zechariah was mute. He doesn't say that Zechariah was deaf also. Some scholars think that Zechariah was also deaf in addition to not being able to speak. But Luke doesn't say that. The family's here now making signs to him to try to figure out what they're supposed to name the child. And I can almost see Zechariah silently screaming, I'm not deaf! I just can't talk! All your signing does nothing! Just use words! At any rate, they eventually figure out the best thing to do is to get him a wooden tablet covered in wax so he can write his message on it. And on this wooden tablet, he writes, His period name period is period John period. He didn't write all that, but he wrote his name is John. And all at once, the people are amazed, shocked, astounded. They wonder. Like somehow over the last nine months, Zechariah and Elizabeth hadn't found out a way to communicate that the son's name would be John. That somehow over the last nine months, even though he can't speak, Zechariah hadn't been able to tell Elizabeth he was visited by an angel, and the angel told him his son's name would be John. The people are apparently a little slow on the uptake, not able to, they're like, oh my goodness, he, John, or Zechariah said his name's John too, oh my. There are, funny, there are funny parts of the Bible, there are humorous instances, humorous scenes, I think this is one of them, it's okay to laugh. People do silly things. All at once, the people are amazed, though, that Zechariah said his name is John. And as Zechariah writes this down, and the people are astounded, his tongue is loosed, and he's made able to speak. Remember, for nine months, he's not been able to say a word, not been able to shout a peep, not been able to, to sing a tune, nothing at all. And now, all of a sudden... He's able to. God has kept his promise to give Zechariah and Elizabeth a baby boy. And they've named him John as they were instructed. And as God's promise to Zechariah in the temple so many months earlier has now come to, become, come to be a reality, Zechariah's first words after nine months of silence are words of praise to the Lord. More than that, everyone else that's present and everybody who even hears about it responds in awe and wonder as well. Luke says that they are even treasuring these things in their hearts so that they might remember them always, recognizing, recognizing God's hand in all of it. So I think we see the point clearly. Luke has told us of God's promise of a child for Zechariah and Elizabeth. And now that that son is here, now that John is born... And everyone who knew these parents and their situation and their long struggle with infertility and their faithfulness to God in the middle of all of that, they all see that God is behind every last bit of it. And everybody, from Zechariah to Elizabeth to all of the cousins and aunts and uncles and in-laws and outlaws, all respond with wonder and worship and praise and awe. I think we can learn something from Zechariah and Elizabeth and from their family here, about praise. And what we can learn is this, that when God answers prayer and keeps his promises, we do well to be quick to praise him in humble worship. Let me say that a little bit differently. When God answers his promises, do not be slow to praise him. I don't know what it is about being human sometimes that causes us to find ourselves making up reasons not to praise God, making up reasons not to be in wonder at what he is doing. Maybe it's just the cynicism of being disappointed by people time and again that when god does something great we stand around waiting for the other shoe to drop and for everything to somehow go bad we we wait to praise to see what happens next 
When God answers your prayer, dear friend, to give your family member in faith uh, to Christ and to be saved, that one family member you've been praying for forever, let's not stand at a distance saying, well, we'll see, let's give it time. Heavens, no, let us praise God with awe and wonder that He still works the miracle of faith in the hearts of men and women. As God keeps His promise to help you through temptation, to say no to sin when you cry out to Him for help, don't simply wipe your brow and say, whew, that was close. No, in your heart and with your lips, praise His wonderful name. Thank you, God. You have been faithful to help me not to sin. By the power of your Spirit, as I've clung in faith to Jesus, you've not only forgiven sins committed, but you have kept me from committing sin this moment. Praise you, God. Each week that we gather with the saints to worship God in song and in His Word and in prayer together, Christian, do not merely do it out of obligation. Or worse, don't do it as a consumer of spiritual products but see in the gathering of God's people, in the gathered church, the fulfilled promise of God to make for Himself a people, to know Him in His holiness, to love Him in His righteousness, to praise Him for His salvation, to fill them with His Spirit, to adopt them through His Son, to proclaim His glorious grace in the world so that more may know and worship Him. See in this gathering, this morning, the dozens of souls that are here today, the kept promises of God fulfilled in us and say, God, we, who, who are we that you would be mindful of us? And yet we are known by you. God, we are loved by you. We are saved by you and we're being used for your glorious purposes. Here in this place, Father, you have given us a family with a bond deeper than blood and a life more significant than anything that we could make for ourselves, all as a part of your promises to us in Christ. Great are you, Lord, and greatly to be praised because you've kept your promises to us. When God fulfills his promises, do not be slow to praise him. As he answers prayer, praise his name. As he delivers you from temptation, sing his praises. As you gather with the church, his blood-bought people, worship him in awe and wonder that he is doing precisely what he said he would do. Promises kept lead to humble praise. But more than that, promises kept lead to confidence in the promise maker. Promises kept lead to confidence in the promise maker. Verses 67 through 80 of our passage this morning contain what is called Zechariah's prophecy. Now his prophecy is not like what many of us expect when we hear that word. Uh, His prophecy is not so much a divinely inspired prediction of future events so much as it is a word of confidence in what God has done and what God will do. This is the fulfilled promise of God in the birth of John that leads to Zechariah's confidence in God who made the promise. Zechariah's prophecy demonstrates this certainty in God, the certainty in the promise maker in the person and work of God, a couple of different ways. First of all, Zechariah's prophecy demonstrates confidence in God's power to save. If you're taking notes, write that down. Zechariah's prophecy demonstrates confidence in God's power to save. Verses 68 through 75, all one sentence in the original language. It's probably written out as one sentence in your Bibles. It is in mine too, with some commas and semicolons, but who's counting? 
These verses all revolve around Zechariah's assurance that God is strong to save. In these several verses, Zechariah refers back to many ideas and images related to God's salvation throughout the Old Testament. You may have a number of different, if you have a cross-reference or a reference Bible like I do, a number of different uh, superscripted letters uh, before or after certain parts of that verse. And and those superscripted letters probably lead you to a footnote somewhere uh, on the page of your reference Bible referencing other passages of Scripture, probably mostly from the Old Testament. From the Psalms to Samuel to the prophet Micah, this priest, Zechariah, is mindful that because God has answered his word to give him a son who would be the herald of the Messiah, the prophet that goes before, the the forerunner to the Christ, that all of God's wonderful promises of salvation are coming true before his very eyes. Zechariah is saying, God, you are good to do this. You promised it, and now you're doing it. Here's the funny thing. Zechariah hasn't even seen yet the fulfillment of a promise of a Messiah, but he knows that the birth of his son has all but assured that the Messiah will come. The promise of God's strength to save is being realized in front of Zechariah's eyes as he brings a horn of salvation, a son of David in the Christ. The mercy of God to his people for generations from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to Zechariah's own day is coming full bloom in his presence. And the reality that God is saving a people, that he's making them righteous and holy so that they might worship him without fear of his holy judgment, well, that day is just around the corner because the Redeemer, the prophet that's better than Moses, the king that is greater than David is on his way, Zechariah says. Everything about these first verses of Zechariah's prophecy is a proclamation of this man's confidence in God to save, to redeem, to rescue, all because God is keeping his promises to this old couple who never had a child until now. But this new father's prophecy also demonstrates another kind of confidence, confidence in God's power to save, yes, but also confidence in God's chosen savior, confidence in the one who is still coming. Verses 76 through 79 have two people in view. If you read those verses again, you'll see them. The two people in view are Zechariah's son and the Messiah, the Lord, who is coming. The first, Zechariah's son, John, will come to know him better in due time in Luke's gospel as either John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And here, as Zechariah prophesies, he isn't saying anything new about what John will do or be. Look again, uh, verse 76. Zechariah says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. This isn't new information to us. Zechariah is really just repeating what Gabriel the angel told him would be true of John in the temple so many months before. And because Zechariah had the son that God had promised him, he is also certain that John will be what God said he would be. Not only did God give me the son he said he would promise, but because God gave me the son that he promised, I'm trusting that, that, that this son is going to be exactly what he promised he would be, forerunner to the Messiah. John's job, this little baby that Zechariah is prophesying over, and the Savior's job, who is the other person in view in these verses, Jesus, their job will be similar and in some ways will overlap. John will prime the people of Israel for the salvation that is coming. 
for the forgiveness of sins that God gives to the repentant, for the mercy of God that is poured out on the needy and the light of, uh, and his light that shines into darkened hearts. And just as Jesus, too, will proclaim a message of repentance of sins for forgiveness, so also will Jesus be the one that delivers God's mercy. Jesus is the one who is the light of the world. He is the one who takes our sins on himself at the cross to cast them as far as the east is from the west. And Zechariah is proclaiming with absolute confidence this is going to happen. So take note of this. Zechariah's confidence in God, the promise maker, to do everything that he has promised for years on end is made absolutely certain for this man simply because God has given him the son that was promised. Promises kept lead to confidence in the promise maker. What about you this morning? Are you, like Zechariah, confident that God can do all that he promises in his word to do? Are you certain that he is able to save you from sin and to give you the kind of life that only he can provide? I'm not under the assumption that everyone in the room this morning is a follower of Jesus. Some of you may not yet be Christians. And if that's you, I'm exceptionally glad that you're here today. I've been a believer in Jesus since I was a child most of my life. And so I don't always connect as well with those who are not believers. I don't connect as well with those who have reasons that they don't yet believe. I'm trying But all the same, I can imagine that you may be questioning this morning so much of what we're seeing in God's Word and saying. You may be thinking to yourself, there is no way that I logically can have confidence in a God that I'm not even certain exists. Or you may be thinking, just because an old couple had a baby doesn't mean Jesus is the Savior. That happens a lot. And to be honest, friend, I can sympathize with those thoughts. Let me try to address each of them briefly. First, on the matter of God's existence. How can I trust a God that I don't even know exists? Well, I could this morning point you to some helpful arguments for God's existence. The cosmological argument, the moral argument, the argument from the appearance of design and creation. These are all good arguments for the existence of God, and I encourage you to go Google them. And maybe watch some videos by a helpful uh, philosopher, David Lane, uh, William Lane Craig, along these lines. Those arguments might get you to admit the possibility of a God, but they, might not, but they probably won't make you certain of the identity of that God, that he is the God of the Bible. And so for that, I would point you a different direction. I would point you to human experience and what we're able to make of our world. And I would say, look at the, looking at the world around us, the Bible's account of why the world is the way that it is seems to most clearly and most closely make sense of what we see in the world. So there are a number of arguments that can point you to the existence of God, but then we just look at human experience and what we see in the world and hold that up against what we read in God's Word and say, and I think we can say, the Bible seems to most clearly reflect and explain why the world is the way that it is today. Humanity's deepest cross-cultural longings and grasping for meaning are most clearly answered by what Scripture claims that we're made in the image of God to know and love and worship Him. And by our sin, we've broken fellowship with Him. And that's why we have these longings. But what about Jesus? Well, to be sure, no serious historian doubts Jesus' existence. No serious historian doubts His significance. Many doubt that He was, in fact, God. 
But they do not doubt that he died on a cross after a life of teaching and preaching the way to know God in truth. So how can I have confidence in a God that I don't even know exists? There's a number of arguments that will point you to the the very strong likelihood, possibility, maybe even certainty of God's existence. The description of the Bible, of why the world is the way that it is, ought to give you some confidence that the God that, that these reasonable arguments point us to is probably the God of the Bible, and that Jesus, whom all of Scripture is centered around, really did live and really did die. Here's the catch, non-Christian. I can't make you believe that Jesus was the Son of God. I can't. No one can. No one can force you to believe that. No one can compel you to believe that. That's why it's a matter of faith, and faith not believing in things that we've never seen or don't have good reason to believe, but faith in the sense of trusting, depending on Jesus as someone that, that we can only know by faith. Now, I can say that there is not only good reason to believe Jesus, but I can say that there is compelling evidence in God's Word and in the world around us that ought to, at the very least, cause you to consider Him, dear friend. And then there's the experience of countless Christians who have come to trust that Jesus is the Christ. Many billions through the centuries whose lives have been dramatically changed because they trusted the promise of God to make them new and whole and righteous before Him by trusting Christ whose scripture says died for our sins and was raised again. We have confidence that Christ saves, that Jesus rescues from sin because God's other promises in scripture all seem to point to who Jesus was and what he did. And because we have compelling reason to believe that Jesus not only died, but that he was raised from the dead, we have all the more confidence in all that God says is true including our universal need to be saved from our sin and rebellion against God. Seeing the promises of God made true in Zechariah's life, this older couple having a baby somewhat miraculously, this may not be a slam dunk for faith in Christ for you. There's still a step of faith to go, but the many fulfilled promises of God in the Bible sure do get us a long way in being able to make that last small step of depending upon Jesus as Lord. So, dear Christian, you may be wondering, how can I have faith in a God that I don't even know exists? Well, there's good reason to believe that there is a God who exists. There's good reason to to be confident in that he is who he says he is because his word most closely reflects what we see in the world. And because of that, we come to see and come to know Jesus the Christ and whom history says was born and lived and died a, a, a death on a cross for whom there's good historical evidence to say he was even raised from the dead. And if that is true... There's every good reason to trust him, every good reason to have confidence in the one who promises to save. Now, dear Christian, I gather that I probably don't need to convince you today of God's trustworthiness to save you from sin through faith in Christ. We who know him rejoice in the faithfulness of God, and our confidence in him is bolstered all the more when we read this story, when we read Luke's painstakingly historic account of the event leading up to Jesus' birth. Like Zechariah, we look at John's birth and we say, yes, Lord, you are good and you are trustworthy and we do depend on you. You who make promises, keep your promises. And so we praise your name and we trust you. John's birth, as foretold, gives us added certainty to Jesus' birth as foretold and fulfilled. And his death, Jesus' death and resurrection, give us confidence of the promise of salvation that he gives to everyone who trusts in him. 
but more still the presence of the Holy Spirit of God living in the hearts of everyone who knows Christ as Lord, everyone who believes on Him. The same Holy Spirit that inspired Zechariah's prophecy, that same Holy Spirit gives us confidence that God will also fulfill one more promise yet. A promise to raise our bodies from the grave and for Jesus to return in glory to renew all creation and to gather us to be with Him forever. There are a good many promises of God to us that are already realized in Christ. And there is yet one more that we wait for. And why is it that we can wait with confidence for Christ's return? Because the promise maker has been keeping his promises all along. Because promises kept inspire confidence in the promise maker. There are, yes, yet promises that we wait for God to fulfill. But because he has kept so many others... We can have certainty in him that he will yet keep for those, uh, he will keep those for which we wait in eager anticipation. God fulfills his promises so that we might praise him. God fulfills his promises so that we might have all the more confidence in him to keep doing what he has promised. The response of the people at Zechariah's birth, the prophecy of Zechariah, the content of his prophecy demonstrates that. My friends, we have not come to trust a God who swears by changing things, the moon, the seasons, not even the sun, but we have come to trust a God who has sworn by himself to rescue those who trust him. He has answered his promise of rescue to us in Christ. Let us, as those who know that promise, who observe it yearly, especially at this time of Christmas, let us praise him for his promises kept in Jesus. And may our confidence in Him be all the more certain that He will send His Son again to raise us on the last day. My dear friend, if you're here this morning as one who is not yet a follower of Jesus, the invitation is open to you to know Him today. There is good reason to believe that God exists. There's good reason to believe that His Word is true. And there is good reason to believe that Jesus is His Son who was born of a virgin, who lived a life without sin, who died in our place on the cross and was raised from the dead so that all who give their life and trust and dependence on him will be rescued from their sin, forgiven of their rebellion against God, restored to their creator and given today and forever the kind of life that only God can give. There is wonderful hope. There's wonderful peace. There's wonderful joy in spirit in knowing Christ. And our invitation to you today is know him. Know him. Come to know and trust the God who not only makes promises, but who keeps them because he's sworn by himself to do so. If you need to trust Jesus this morning, I invite you, come find me after worship today. Let's talk together about what it means to have faith in Christ. If you came into this building this morning not believing in Jesus, and now you find yourself strangely believing in him, let's talk after service today. Let's have confidence about those things together from God's word. Let's pray that, we might, that you might have assurance of your salvation with God and talk with you about what it means now to follow Jesus. I invite you, if you're maybe a little shy, to come talk to me. Talk with one of our members today. Maybe sneak in with a, a small group Bible study this morning and, and hijack the Bible study this morning by saying, I came in a non-believer, but I'm believing today. Can y'all help me? And those brothers and sisters in that room will be, help, will be happy to help you know how to follow Jesus this morning. Let's go to the Father in prayer as we uh, reflect on and ask for his help to respond to his word as we ought.